Welcome to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast, where our team is helping people build their financial freedom. And one of the things we talk a lot about is saving and investing 25% of one's income. And I'm your host, Joel Farrell. And each week we dig into the ways that people are generating more income to be able to save more money and the ways that they are investing that hard-earned dollar. And lastly, the how, how people are making these changes. Because again, we're talking about changes. We're talking about changing behaviors. Let's get into today's content so we can help you on your financial journey towards living a life with the power of choice. Welcome back to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. And I've got an amazing guest on today, a friend of mine, Kevin, self-storage venture on Twitter. We're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff, real estate, a couple of different lanes and entrepreneurship and getting out of the nine to five. So Kevin, thanks so much for making time for us today. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for having me, man. So first thing, Twitter, right? Self-storage venture on Twitter. What are the basics that you do in general? And then what are you doing on Twitter? Yeah. So I'm actually off all social media. I don't have Instagram or Facebook or any of the other stuff. I just have Twitter. And it was because a good friend of mine was like, hey, you should document what you're doing. You've done a lot over the last 15 years in the real estate space and you should document your journey. So a few months ago, I gave in, I said, okay. And I started this Twitter and it's just documenting primarily my journey into self-storage. I started in single family homes, moved into multifamily homes, and just recently acquired my first self-storage facility. And I really like the business. I like the asset class and I plan to acquire more. So what you're saying is there's still a chance. It's not oversaturated. I think it depends on the market, like anywhere, right? But there is absolutely markets that the demand is much higher than supply, and it still makes sense to purchase self-storage facilities. Okay. So right now, what area do you own self-storage in? We're in North Carolina. I'm also a partner in a couple other deals, more so on a passive limited partner base in Texas and in Utah. Okay. So you've got multiple things going already. Okay. So so what I want to do is just kind of get into a baseline of what, what's going on in that world and then come back to your journey a little bit later yeah, to kind sure. of give listeners a little bit of an idea. Because honestly, I would say if I asked 100 of my customers, probably one or two, if I were to guess, would have any idea about self-storage. So I, I don't think it's that common on, uh, on the streets for people to be aware of. So I think this is really cool to be able to get something out there like this. And again, on, on Twitter, right? There's a lot of people talking about it, but... The very first deal you did, can you kind of give us a little bit of background on that and how it all works and all the numbers? Yeah, absolutely. So the first deal that, that I did was a facility in North Carolina. And I think I, but prior to doing that deal, I had this limited belief that self-storage, you had to have a whole bunch of money to go buy a self-storage facility. And you know it was impossible to get into and you had to know somebody. It was very much a limiting belief on my part. It's just as easy to get into self-storage as it is at any other asset class, including single family homes or multifamily. So I bought this self-storage facility in North Carolina for $705,000. Purchased it, needed a little bit of work, added maybe somewhere between $30,000 and and $50,000 worth of work to the facility. Occupancy when we bought it was just below 50%. This was five months ago. We're now above 80%. So we've increased occupancy 30 plus percent. The rental rates for the unit were about 50% below market rent. We've now increased rental rates on new customers 
to market. So on that 30% increase of occupancy, we now have those customers paying us market rent, which is 50% higher than existing customers. We've done one rent raise on existing customers, not to bring them quite up to market, but just to kind of bring them into that middle tier. So purchased a facility that was doing about $4,000 a month. Currently now we're doing about $8,000 a month and we still have quite a bit of room to grow. Okay. Because I have questions just from a numbers financing standpoint, but four month in rent. So you, you go buy a $700,000 property. It's only making 4,000 in rent. I'm sure your payment is higher than that. You don't have to give specifics uh, if you don't want to, but. No, that's fine. So we, we had a unique financing structure with this one and it was, I guess it wasn't technically financing, but what we did was we rolled the property that we had in. Uh, a multifamily unit that we had in Tucson, Arizona. We sold that and rolled it into this property. So we used the equity that we had created in a multifamily unit as a six unit, a little sixplex in Tucson. And we took that equity and sold it and moved it directly into the storage facility. So that's how we financed this. We did. Yeah. So that's how we financed this property. Cool. Cool. Okay. So, so payment above or below 4,000. Again, you don't have to answer. Uh, it's no, it's below, but partially because we were able to roll in some equity that we had in a previous deal. Okay. Okay. But yeah. again, that that's important, which again I want to come back to you on the journey because you can't get to that deal without having done the previous stuff. It doesn't happen overnight. Okay. So- yeah, and, and it definitely helped us. I will say that the other deal that we have in Utah, that was a three hundred thousand dollar deal, much more obtainable without having something else. Just so happened this one was a little bigger price point, primarily because it's right by the beach. It's in North Carolina. The land value is very high. So we felt that it was a safe bet, even though it had a higher price tag. Okay. So the one in Utah, this is a is one that you maybe are in it with some other people? That's correct. Yeah. I'm a limited partner in that one. So I invested some funds into the deal. I help a little bit on operations, but I am not the true operator. Somebody else is running the day-to-day operations. I'm more of a strategy level partner. Okay. Gotcha. I mean, there's a lot to unpack on that too, just with all <laughs> the stuff that goes into it, but we'll wait on that. Uh, and, and again, we don't have a whole lot of time. We got about 30 minutes to, to jump into this. And I think the biggest questions that I think most of my clientele would have is, hey, somebody with no experience on this, is it worth digging into? How do I get in? You know, what are the numbers and terms need to be? So, like, for for that deal, you know, you, you got an operator that's bringing in some other capital to do it. Was it a improve facility, fix and flip kind of a mindset, or underserved or under under rented property? What are the, the details on that one? Yeah, the one in Utah is that what you're asking? Yeah, about? yeah. So that that one is the goal is to sell it within somewhere between 18 and 36 months, market dependent. But that one was way under market rent. It was, I think the occupancy was, I think it was physically occupied 60%, but only 30% were paying. So there there was a, a heavy lift in the beginning to try and get tenants to pay and those who weren't paying to get them out and then bring them in at a new market rate. But I will say, to answer your first point of, does this make sense? Should you pursue this and how would you pursue it? It does make sense in a lot of markets. And I think that the numbers can be significant. The return generated can be significant in self-storage to where a operator can come in, 
find a deal, operate the deal, and have a large enough piece of equity in that deal to make money without actually putting money in themselves, but going to raise the funds for the deal. So that specific deal, that that gentleman who found the deal and who's running the day-to-day operations, he took 50% equity to do that. He put no money in. He went and raised 100% of the funds for the remaining 50, 50% equity. So, I mean, he is generating an infinite return because he has not put any money into the deal. So finding deals and being able to operate deals, you can make money without having to have money in the bank or in another property or tied up. So that operator, how many, if you were to guess, how many has he done previous to be able to build that reputation? Three. Three. Okay. So goal is increase rents, fill it, sell it. Yeah. And the goal is to find, I'm not looking for the public storage, for the extra space storage, for these nice, big, fancy facilities. Um, Similar to what I did in the single family space and and multi-unit spaces. I'm looking for uh, something where I can add value. I'm looking for mom and pop. I'm looking for something that, uh, like you mentioned, below has low occupancy, has below market rates, maybe doesn't have a website, you know, has poor signage, is doing no marketing. They don't answer the phone when someone calls to rent storage. I'm looking for all those red flags of like, this is someone is operating this business not as it should be so that I can come in and optimize and grow revenue. Okay. The North Carolina, you mentioned it's near the beach. Are you okay sharing kind of which region of North Carolina? Yeah, it's in Brunswick. It's in Brunswick County. Brunswick County. Uh, okay, so, cool. so Brunswick County. And another reason I was willing to kind of pay a hefty price tag on this is Brunswick County is one of the top 10 fastest growing counties in the US. So I, I saw where land values were going and thought, hey, even if the storage facility disappeared, I wouldn't lose that much money just because of the land price and, and where I purchased. So I had a little bit of safety buffer in there. Cool. So the minimum down payment for a deal like this, 25% down, 30% down. Like what are the, go to a commercial it's, bank? How does that work? Yeah, there's so many different options, more options than even you have with you know a single family home. So you have your traditional bank, right? 20% down is typical. The more, the better, especially right now in today's environment. A lot of times, depending on where the revenue is, and if you are buying value out, that revenue might be low and you might be overpaying because you can see where it's projected to go. And in that case, maybe your loan to value needs to be needs to be different. Maybe you're coming in with 30% down. That's one way. I try and stay away from banks on the acquisition sides as much as possible. I feel like they they ruin a lot of deals. So where I try and focus is either one, bringing in investors to have a piece of the equity is two, seller financing, which is huge, especially with rates where they are right now. If you can get the seller to finance a portion of it, you may be able to come in with 5% down, 10% down, maybe even zero down, depending on how you structure the deal. Three, you can also get an SBA loan because this is a business. It's not considered a, yes, it's an asset, but there's a very much a business tied to that asset, unlike a single family home. So now you're unlocking all of the different SBA loans that you can receive to purchase something like this with all different down payments and and different rate structures and things like that. So that's something to explore. And then you can obviously go out and, and do you know a hard money loan or, or get you know capitalized by a private individual or entity outside of a banking institution. You're going to pay a higher rate, but if you can drive revenue up and, and hopefully maybe refinance out at a later date or have some sort of exit plan, that may be a way to go. So the deal that you did in North Carolina uh, that has significant equity 
you know, transferring over, did you end up doing an SBA loan or private money or what did you end up doing for yours? We no. what we did was we sold that sixplex and it was able to cover the entire amount of the purchase price because of the equity we had built. That was a sixplex that we had bought in 2010. So okay. you can imagine Tucson in 2010 and now where it is today. So we were able to take that almost dollar for dollar, almost the exact amount and purchase the storage facility in North Carolina. Okay. So on that, right, the money that you have from the sale of that house, okay, so you're going to have principal capture, right? And then also, you know, appreciation capture. So like, could you have put less money down if you wanted to maybe negotiate like a seller financing or did did all that money go in? Absolutely. No, I could have. And it was a thought. Rates where they were, it just it didn't make sense because the revenue was too low. I didn't want to be in the hole every month um, trying to catch up with rates. So my goal was, hey, if I can buy this and hold it as all equity, and then when rates come down, whenever that is, three years, five years, seven years, refinance conservatively year. with the bank. One year. Um, so so that was the goal is, is buy this equity, be able to enjoy the cash flow while there's all equity, and then come in conservatively refinance. And and that's what I just took the same playbook, the same model that we've done with single family homes and multifamily and applied it to storage. We, we would do that. We would either raise the funds, somehow come up with the funds, buy something with cash, fix it up, optimize it, refinance conservatively and hold on to that asset. I'm doing the same thing in the storage space. And it seems like that's going to be the way I'll continue to do things. Raising funds. How would you describe that in- in two sentences of how, how to do it and, and two, why it works. Two, two sentences, huh? Two sentences or two uh, minutes, whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, I, I think it's easier than people think. I think if people were to sit down, spend a few minutes, create a list of just friends and family, I think a lot of people have a limiting belief, and I did too in the beginning, that like none of my friends and family are going to want to invest in this. People I know aren't going to want to invest in me. That's very much uh, a limiting belief. I think if you create that list, it's going to be bigger than you think it is. And you're going to have more people that are interested than you might initially think. And I think that's a great place to start. And then joining different groups. I am in a self-storage investing group where I can put out a deal and say, hey, here's the numbers. Here's the deal. And I can have investors say, hey, I'd like to invest in that. So I think putting yourself in a group of like-minded people is extremely important. And then what about the back end of it? Okay, so you got people that are interested and then the actual logistics of it. Yeah, there's so many different ways to structure a deal. I, I, there's, I mean, there's two main ways. There's, you can raise a fund or you can raise a syndication. Syndication is just for one asset. Typically, that's something that I would do with storage. I would say, hey, here's the asset. We've identified the asset. Here's the numbers. Here's the projections. Let's all put in money and buy this asset and we'll all get a piece of it. Uh, for finding the deal and operating the deal, I'm going to take a little bit bigger piece um, and I may or may not also invest as a limited partner and put in some of my own capital to that deal. That's one way to do it. The other way, and and I would say the more complex way is a fund where you raise the money prior to finding deals. Uh, You have now this bucket of money uh, that is in this LLC and now you go out and you find deals with that money. I think it's a lot easier to raise per asset because you know everyone knows exactly what they're buying. They know the numbers on that deal. They can be comfortable or not comfortable with it and make a decision. With the fund, there's a little more ambiguity there. And as far as structure and setting it up, number of different ways to do it. I think the, the simplest way is you create an LLC 
and everybody is a member who invests of that LLC based on their investment percentage. So if you invest 10%, you're a 10% member in that deal. Me who found the deal will take X percent for finding it and for operating it. And I will be a managing member as so you'll be the member, I'll be a managing member, I make all the key decisions. So it's just setting up an L, a, a multi-person LLC is probably the simplest way to describe it and how to do it. But what about like attorneys finalizing paperwork and raising capital memorandums and all that stuff? Private. Yeah, I think you want to find an attorney in the state that the facility is in. So m- most attorneys will tell you that if you try and you know use an out-of-state attorney for an asset in a different state, they're going to just refer you to, to an attorney of that state. So once you find that person, it's just creating the uh, agreement. Many of any real estate attorney is going to have done this multiple times and, and you can vet them out by reviews and ask them questions and, you know, have you done this before? What types of deals have you done? But that's a pretty simple part. These aren't super complex. If you're at a fund level, as opposed to a syndication level, it gets a little more complex. But if you're just raising money for one deal, it, it, it's pretty straightforward. And any valuable real estate attorney should be able to help you out. So kind of back to the word you use, limiting beliefs. It's obtainable. It's doable. Obviously, it's a lot of work, but you know, finding the right who that can help you guide the process. Yeah, absolutely. I think finding a mentor is huge. Finding somebody in the space that that can you can bounce questions off. I did that. I was brand new to the space. I, I found a mentor and found a coach. And I work with him on a monthly basis to try and get better at my craft, if you will, right? This new asset class for me. So I think that's extremely important. And I think that, you know, yeah, I did a, a seven hundred thousand dollar deal in North Carolina, and there's deals that obviously go up into you know many millions of dollars. But there's also I just saw a deal today, one hundred sixty thousand in Oklahoma for a nine thousand square foot storage facility. It's like twenty percent occupied. It's just basically just been sitting there. The, the, you know, the owner has just neglected it entirely. Well, I, I ran the numbers on it. You you can double your money within twelve to eighteen months on that just by operating it like a business. That's one hundred sixty thousand. So this you can start small you can start big you can start in the middle you know it's open it's definitely a viable option for investors so from a market standpoint is there any place that you know hey i would not go there if i were you based on my own per- by based on your personal opinion in terms of just geographic i always recommend starting where you live and then expanding out because you're familiar with that area you know that area you can you know drive to the facility if need be well i live in california and I would say that's on my, you know, close to like do not buy list just because of the prices that we have here. And it just the numbers don't always make sense. So for me, I went outside my state and I really went outside. I went all the way across the country. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm going to name specific uh, cities that would be a no-go for me. But I do think it's important to look at supply and demand in the local area where you find a facility and make sure that the demand is there. Because if you go to an oversupplied market and you try and raise rents or you try and increase occupancy, it's just going to be more of a struggle. So how would somebody evaluate that level of supply and demand? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll tell you the simple free way to do it. Go on Google Maps, go to a city, type in storage facility, see all the storage facilities that come up. You'll be able to, they'll be tagged on the map. There might even be a couple of them that aren't tagged on Google because they don't have a website or a Google business page but you'll be able to identify them on the satellite view because they look like big rectangle boxes and there's a bunch of them. 
Then what you're going to do is you're going to use the measuring distance tool on Google Maps. I don't know if you know that's there, but it is. You just right click and you can do measure distance and you will measure all of those boxes. And you'll take the area of the box, length times width, and you'll do that for however many miles within that city you want to go. Typically, let's say within a five mile radius of the facility you're looking at, you're going to measure all the area of the storage facilities in that radius. You're going to come up with a a big number of square footage. Let's say it's 200,000 square feet of storage in a five mile radius. Then what you're going to do is look at the population of that same five mile radius. And then you're just going to divide the two and you're going to see, well, what is the square foot of storage per person? Now, the national average, they say, is about eight square feet of storage per person. So if you have greater than eight square feet of storage per person, in theory, you're oversupplied. If you have under, you're undersupplied. Now, that is a very rough estimate. A lot of it depends on market and there's other factors that play into demand. But that'll at least get you in the ballpark. If you do that and you say, well, gosh, there's 50 square feet of storage for every person, probably a little bit oversupplied in that market. You're probably not going to want to enter that market. Okay. So I hope that given, made sense. As I, as you, I no, that was me. way more specific than I, I thought you'd, you'd be willing to go. And you mentioned two markets, you know, so Brunswick, I mean, that's outside Wilmington, not a huge market, but there's a lot of military Coast Guard, you know, Marines in that area. So you know, a, a good area. Utah, I don't know, you know, do you are willing to share like what part of Utah that was in? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question because I don't even remember the city that, <laughs> that it's in because I am not the, uh, okay. the main data. But, but it fit, but it fit it's the southern, metrics. But it's Southern Utah. Oh, Southern Utah. Okay, cool. Yeah, small city. Yeah. Okay. So when you look at all that, and you mentioned single family to multifamily, 2010, you got in, into a sixplex in, in um, Arizona. You know, how does this play out for you? You got now you've got the one in North Carolina and a couple other ones. And what where do you see this going for the next five, 10 years? Yeah. And I think it's a great question. It's a question that I try and ask myself too, because I'm not, I don't have a hundred percent clarity on it right now, just to be honest. There's days I wake up and I want to like shoot for the moon and like I want to build this little empire of real estate. And then there's other days I wake up and like I don't want to do any of that. I just want to play with my three-year-old and my one-year-old, and I don't want to have anything take me away from that. So I go back and forth. So personally, I need to find more clarity on this. I think it's okay to not know. Maybe I say that just because I'm in this space right now where I don't know. But what I do know is that I would like to purchase two facilities a year for the next five years. And I have a buy and hold strategy. I like to, and I did this with the single family space and multifamilies. We would we sold on occasion if it made sense, but for the most part, we bought undervalued assets, optimized them, stabilized them, and then refinanced them conservatively. And we still hold on to those assets today. I would like to do that in self-storage. If I can buy one or two facilities a year, preferably two, and have 10 facilities in five years that I still own, I think I'm going to be in a great place. From a trend standpoint, like, okay, housing you know, X amount of 330 million people. This is the amount of housing out there. There's a, you know, a shortage in housing, quote unquote, you know, there's metrics out there like that, but from a storage, people who need storage, how do, how do you even quantify what's needed or not needed? And, you know, what are the trends looking like of people using it and not using over say 10, 20 years? How, how would you answer that? Question? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question and it's, 
it's something that that I try and look into as much as possible. I will say that there was this theory out there that millennials, I'm included, I'm 34, were not going to use storage. It was for the the generations ahead of us. Well, that has been disproven, and I see it at my facilities because I look at the age of people who rent my units, and it's primarily millennials. So there was this big fear that like, well, this demand is going to go way down as millennials don't use storage like the generations ahead of us. That's not the case. They're using storage more than the generations ahead of us. And we're the biggest generation right now that is shifting into starting families and, and home ownership, which are two great reasons for storage. Mm-hmm. So I, I like where it's going on a macro level. On a micro level, you just have to dig into your market and, and figure out who is in your market and what is the supply and demand there and will that trend continue? And that's a little bit harder. Okay. So, I mean, do you know anybody who, you know, has a home and maybe just a bunch of kids running around and got stuff in storage and they've built like a little, you know, hidden den or, you know, a secret hiding place in, in their storage facility just to, just to get away? Oh, I got to go pick up stuff from the storage and just hang out for like an hour or two. Well, we've had, I've had storage myself, my family and I up until just a couple of years ago. Well, I guess more than that, I guess up until we bought our current home four years ago, we always had storage. I lived in the Bay Area where, you know, space was tough to come by and we kept a storage unit. Um, I think a lot of people do it. Like we've had baby clothes. It's like, well, are we going to have another? Are we not going to have another? What are we going to do with all these clothes, all these toys? They have sentimental value that, you know, well, we might use them for another child. It's like, well, what do you do with it? You only have so much garage space. And then you look at people that, you know, the Northeast is a little bit different because a lot of them have basements. So that's kind of their storage facility. That's why you see more storage facilities in the South and Southeast, no basements. So it's like, what do you do with all this stuff? I mean, we're just a, a nation of consumers. Eventually, you, you have to get storage. And then you add into that movement, especially just over the last few years when everybody was you know, changing states, changing jobs. That's obviously slowed down since then. But then you add in life events like divorce, job changes, things like that. And there's this constant need for storage regardless of age and demographics. So what you're saying is, there's definitely a chance. Like th- this is a space there's that definitely some- ch- yeah, there's definitely a chance, man, more than a chance. It- it's a great asset class to explore. Now I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say it's the best asset class and you have to invest in storage and forget everything else, but it's an option. And I think it should be explored. You know, when COVID hit, we had a, a-, a decent portfolio of single family homes and multifamily. And the reason for my transition into storage, well, there was a number of things, but, uh, a driving factor was that it was really hard to evict somebody who was not paying rent. And during COVID time, people didn't have to pay rent. And we had to follow the tenant laws in those states. And that's tough when you have mortgages and all these other expenses and people aren't paying your rent. You you can't just not pay your mortgage because they're not paying their rent. So what I liked about storage was it wasn't tenant laws. It was lien laws. And lien laws are very much simplistic, very straightforward. If you don't pay for your storage facility, I can place a lien on your items, lock you out of your unit. Every state has a different amount of days for when you can do that. Typically, it's between 30 and 45 days of non-payment. And then I can auction off your unit and get a new customer in. So instead of having somebody be in a house not paying the rent for 6, 9, 12 months, and there's really nothing I can do about it, or I'm going to spend a whole lot of money trying to do something about it, Storage is simple. I, they're in and out in 60 days and I get a new customer in. And I like that. That that made that brought down the risk for me. 
So let's say that, you know, just by circumstance, I come across, you know, an underimproved, non-performing unit in XYZ state, city, it's an opportunity. And I am like, hey, well, shoot, I don't know anything about this space or where to go, but I found a deal. I know this is a deal. Can I just reach out to you on Twitter, self-storage ventures? Like, yo, bro, is this a deal? Can you help me? Can, can somebody reach out to you if they find a deal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in trying to help as many people as I can. I'm a fireman. I enjoy my day job. I don't, this isn't what I do full time as invested real estate. I'm actually a fireman. So yeah, absolutely. I think you, you should be careful about who you're doing that to. Cause some people, you know, if it is a really good deal and you're just bringing it to them before you have it locked up, right. They may just take it and run. So, so, right. you know, trust the person you're going to, but absolutely. If anyone wants to float questions by me or deals by me, or, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to take a look and, and help people. I, I think I, I come from an abundance mindset. I, I think there is more than enough self storage out there for anybody who wants to get involved. And that's just the mindset. I look at it and I think I'd, I'd be happy to help. Do you have like a coaching platform? No, I, uh, I don't. And I kind of do that on purpose. I just, I don't know that it's that I don't have a coach myself, but I just, I think they are tough to come by the ones that are really true to themselves and doing it for the right reasons. So I don't know, maybe in the future I'll do something like that. But for right now, I just enjoy helping people out. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much time in the day too. I mean, like two young kids, how, how many kids do you have total? We have two. Yep. Okay. Two, two. Yeah. So one and three, got your hands full, got the job, doing all the stuff on the side too. So there's only so much time in the day. Yeah. We stay busy. That's for sure. In this house. <laughs> and I just interviewed somebody recently, Matthew Pizan up in Pennsylvania. And he bought his first house in 2014 as a straight up investment property. And I think he said he was 36 and he just retired from his engineering job last year. And I bring that up because like, you know, here we are talking about real estate in different fashions and formats and, you know, real regular people are attacking this stuff and getting ahead and then like literally becoming quote unquote financially free where your assets are spitting off on income to support your lifestyle. It's possible if you follow the right formulas and blueprints and all that stuff. And, you know, if you buy two every year for five years, I mean, obviously you're going to be in a much better position, hopefully than now. And in terms of spitting off income and the one you have right now, it's free and clear. Like, I mean, do you have an idea or target of how you want that to look of not working anymore with with a full-time job? Or what are your thoughts on that? Say that one more time. I'm sorry. I mean, do you have a target for when you want to stop working? Yeah. It's a constant uh, discussion between me and my (laughs) wife. I still love the job. So it's it's difficult for me because I love love driving a fire engine. I love responding to calls. I love helping people. So I still find great enjoyment from the job. That said, we have a, a, a kind of a unique schedule where I'm gone for two days a week. Uh, and then I'm home for four, gone for two, home for four. Um, so it is taxing on the family. It is tough. I, I miss the family when I'm gone for those two days. So that's the downside to the job. So I go back and forth. I, I don't have a, a end date of like, hey, I want to definitely be done by this date. But I saying that I also definitely don't see myself going toward going to the age of 50 where most people retire. You know, I would expect it to be probably in the next five years or so. So kind of personal note, as you're saying that and and kind of given the stories about two days on, four days, two days away, four days away, four days on, like I was away for a few days over the weekend for a work trip and like my boys are four years old 
And like just in two or three days, like I come back and I can just tell something's a little bit different by the way that they're speaking about something like a little bit more educated or well-versed. It's, it's just weird how only a couple of days you can notice these little bit differences, like being away those two days over time. Like what does that do? What, what's your thought on that in general? Yeah, you're totally right. Kids change so, so fast. And then there's other times where I'm gone for two weeks because I'll get sent out on, you know, a big wildland fire campaign on a strike team and I'll be gone for two weeks on some, you know, wildland fire. But uh, yeah, it's tough. I I mean, there's pros and cons to it. When I'm home, I'm home. I've luckily set up the storage business and the real estate business to where I'm not spending a whole lot of time on it. Uh, So when I'm home those four days, I, I, I can be present, you know, for the most part. And when I'm gone those two days, I, I also try and work a little bit on my stuff at the fire station to be able to have that presentness when I am home. So it's difficult. There, there's pros and cons to it. Uh, but I will say it was a lot cooler when I was when I didn't have kids. I enjoyed it. And, and even just, you know, being single is just a different it's a different career than it is now having a family at home and you're gone and can't leave. Like, you know, you're, you know, barring an emergency, I'm there. Yep. Okay. So last thing. You mentioned two a year. Do you have any targets in mind right now that you're looking at? Yeah, we are close to being under contract on one in Texas, in the Houston. Um, and we're actively trying to pursue more. So we're sending out letters. We're, we're calling owners. We're looking for the value-add facility where we can come in and, and optimize and stabilize it. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll add one more and, and hopefully we'll be on track for two more next year. That's awesome. Yeah. I think I, re- I was reading somewhere that, that like some of the fastest cities, sm- fastest small cities in terms of growth, like of the top 10, like four or five of them are in Texas. Yeah. So yeah. just from a, a lending standpoint, something that like I've been helping a few people out with some fix and flips and things like that. So like stuff's still going on. The markets are crazy in terms of that. There's just a lot of a stagnancy. It's frozen in a lot of parts, but there's still stuff going on. So yeah, there's definitely still deals to be found. That's for sure. And like I said, I'm happy to help anybody that. Yeah, you know, I could add value to it. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Cool, cool. Well, I know you got to run. Thank you so much for making some time out. We're going to have you back on again down the road. I have more questions about this stuff. And I'm sure our listeners <laughs> yeah, I'd love, I'd love to be well. back. Cool. And anybody that wants to follow along for the journey in real time, self-storage ventures on Twitter. Nothing else, just Twitter. No, I'm just on Twitter. Yeah, it's uh, the storage. <laughs> I think it's storage underscore ventures. Yeah, uh, but okay. Yeah, but your headline name says, so yeah, okay. Storage yeah. underscore yeah. ventures. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, man. I had fun. Appreciate it. No problem. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. If you're ready to jumpstart your financial journey and take it to the next level, you may want to join our 30-day habit challenge, which you can find on our website, strivefor25.com, strive, F-O-R, the number 25.com. You can also follow us on YouTube and Instagram by searching strive for the number 25. And if you have any questions and want to reach out to us, you can also connect with us on our website. Thank you so much.